This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Okay. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm Kara Ong Whaley, co host, and joining me as co host today is Dr. Case Watkins from Justice Studies. Hi, Case. Hi, Kara. Thanks so much. Excited to be here. Excited to be with you. We have a special guest with us today, and Case, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about Tom. Thanks, Kara. Today we are so fortunate to have with us Tom Benevento, uh, a co-founder of Vine and Fig, affiliated with the New Community Project, which is a local project working to enact social and environmental justice. And more recently, Tom has worked as a co-founder on the local 50 by 25 campaign which is working toward a clean, just energy transition for all. So thanks so much for joining us today, Tom. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the purpose and the call to action that motivates your 50 by 25 campaign. What are its goals? Why are they important? Yeah, okay. Well, thank you so much, Case, and for uh, Kara for making this come together. I really appreciate this time to share a little bit about our 50 by 25 campaign. Um, first, I just want to say that um, the clear reality of the impacts of, clim- of the climate crisis and the effects that it's having on uh, communities around the world, particularly vulnerable communities and communities of color uh, who are most affected first and worst locally and globally is really what motivates us on this, on this campaign. I mean, we really have a short window of time to to really confront climate change and make dramatic changes. And we've all got to work together. And for me, um, it really hit home uh, when I met Silvio Perez um, in the Dominican Republic. He is a subsistence farmer who is uh, lives up in the Sierra Nieva Mountains, right on the border of Dominican Republic and Haiti. And uh, through New Community Project, I was assigned to uh, partner with the village people there and explore climate mitigation projects. So um, I was there a few years ago and we were like walking up on these ridges and I remember like crossing stream beds that were probably, you know, four streets wide. uh, And, you know, they were saying that, you know, when they were kids, they could barely cross the stream because there's so much water. And then we just hopped over these little trickles, you know, the amount of uh, dryness and heat increased in that region is just dramatic. And so... I met up with Silvio and he was tying up his donkey to a little post in this dusty dry field high on the mountains. And he waved to me to take me to see some of his corn crops. And so we kind of hiked across some fields and then we sat down and we looked at his corn field that he had planted a few months early and it was all just shriveled up. The corn was only about two feet tall. And uh, he said, you know, I don't know what we're gonna do. This is happening now all the time. And uh, he pulled out a little bag, a little plastic bag of some mangoes, and he gave me a mango. And he said, you know, with my four kids, the last six weeks, all we've been able to eat are mangoes that we find randomly on trees because our crops are devastated. And uh, the more I was there, the more I began to learn from Silvio and others that, you know, that the situation is just really critical. And it's affecting people like Silvio who really their carbon emissions is almost zero, right? And yet they're the ones receiving the impact first and worst. So for me, it's really motivated behind that, that sort of reality. Um, 
that there's so many people being affected by this right now. Um, the, the 50 by 25 campaign, I think the thing I really like about it, its goal is kind of modeled off of nature in many ways about around ecosystem design that creates what we call elegant solutions that, that looks at multiple benefits of something, right? So we can think of a tree, for example, and it's really a multi-purpose solution master, right? A tree provides shade and cools the planet down. It draws carbon. It emits CO2. You know, it provides habitat for cardinals and blue jays and trans evaporation, creates a hydrological cycle, it builds soil. So it like does all these great solutions by doing this thing, right? And so the 50 by 25 campaign tries to do that. We have three basic key actions, items that we're calling for. The first is um, calling for 100% renewable uh, solar and wind by 2035 for the city of Harrisonburg into our electric grid. And that means that we want to, of course, create opportunities for more energy produced here, but also the city would purchase energy into the grid from a state and national access to make it available for everyone. The second thing, and the 50 by 25, by the way, is the first phase would be 50% by 2025. The next phase would be 100% by 2035, right? Um, the next thing we want is... Um, increase energy efficiency and weatherization across the city, particularly with, with public buildings, schools, offices, that sort of thing, and then residential. And there's all kinds of really great programs to incorporate that. The third um, goal is to really infuse this with energy justice so that we're creating a, a working group of diverse stakeholders along with experts to really create the plan and the program to create a just transition to renewable energy and energy efficiency so that you know, equitable pricing and incentives are, are really built within this with people who are most affected by climate change and energy issues, right? So the cool thing about the 50 by 25 is that it, it takes local responsibility for a global problem, right? And it dramatically cuts CO2 emissions, reduces energy use, saves people money, makes homes more comfortable, more, more healthy, creates meaningful jobs, and most importantly, it, it really builds around equity and justice and gives access and voice to, to everybody, particularly most vulnerable folks. Um, so that's okay. sort of the aim of this particular campaign and why it's really important to me. So you, you mentioned some of the goals of the campaign, including increasing mm -hmm. energy efficiency. Yeah and weatherization. Um, and I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what challenges or obstacles you see to that, uh, to achieving those aims, particularly as we think about budget constraints um, as we're navigating through the pandemic um, and the economic crisis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, there's a certainly good questions to ask. The, I think the real beauty about energy efficiency and weatherization is like right now we've come to the, the point where we use energy like we're cutting um, butter with a chainsaw, right? We're using so much energy to do a very small task. Emery Lovins talks about that. And there's a lot of things we just by not doing, we're going to save a lot of energy that actually doesn't cost hardly anything. Like our hot water heaters they're usually set at 120 degrees, right? That's not a temperature we really need. All we have to do is turn it down to 115 degrees. We can save, you know, several dollars every month automatically on our energy bill by doing the free stuff. 
hanging our clothes on the line doesn't cost us anything. <laughs> and we can save a lot of energy, right? And a lot of money. So if we, if we begin to focus on those kinds of things to begin with, I think we can then store up funding for then those other more cost of, you know, things that are more costly. And of course, really a lot of insulation in your attic or in your commercial building, just adding six or 10 more inches does a huge uh, savings for us that costs very little. There's a lot of pet programs out there, the CPACE program, which is a federal program. If our city just creates an ordinance for that program, that'll allow us to receive federal money to incorporate energy efficiency in commercial buildings like rental apartments. So there's money out there. We just have to create the, the incentives or create the will in our political uh, coding to, to make that happen. Thank you, Tom. And then those savings from an ordinance that would, uh, for example, require more energy efficiency in large apartment buildings, would those savings would be passed on to the tenants there, correct? Yeah, correctly. I mean, there's, there's ways you'd have to write that in to make sure that happens. And there's plenty of examples around the country. Massachusetts has some great examples of that, where they call it green leasing, so that they make sure that the renters are the ones benefiting from this. Um, you want to also make it affordable for the, the person who owns the buildings, right, to be able to do it. But then the cost savings ultimately would be connected to the renters themselves. And there's, there's a whole bunch of plans and designs around that. There's like uh, on-bill uh, on le- loans, on-bill recovery loans, where you can actually have renters benefit from solar installations or from energy efficiency. You talked about the campaign being infused with energy justice and bringing diverse stakeholders in as part of the planning process and organizing process. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how you go about identifying and bringing folks into that process, particularly from underrepresented um, or historically marginalized or minoritized groups. And, and what lessons can policymakers learn about the importance of making sure that different perspectives um, are brought to the table yeah. in different decision and policymaking processes? Yeah, happy to answer those. And I think they're somewhat related to a couple down the line here. Um, this, is, this is a great challenge and something we have to do a lot better at, right? And we're learning at this point. Um, the first step is to build friendships and relationships with lots of different diverse groups here in the city and there are many of them and they're doing some really powerful great things and we need to begin to support some of the work that they're doing rather than trying to make them do what we're doing we want to support the good things that they're doing and then build those friendships and there's there's lots of leaders around the city that we've been getting to know and even as we're building the first phase of a resolution right now before we get anywhere, we're wanting their voices infused in that resolution from the start so that it has their perspectives and buy-in right off the bat. So that's actually the process we're in right now is is a first draft sort of resolution. We're bringing it around to, to groups who are really involved in the, on the streets with critical issues that, that represent vulnerable communities and people who often aren't being heard. Um, and so that's ultimately going to build, you know, we can work on this for, for months and months and create a plan and then, you know, make it start to happen a bit. If we don't start with representing everyone, we're going to have to, like, ditch the plan and start all over again. And there's many of examples around the country where they've done that. 
And so we want to try to catch that early on. <laughs> and in our, in our um, resolution and in our, our goals, one of the primary things is to create a, a diverse stakeholders working group to come together and, and bring those experiences, real lived experiences of, of energy poverty and energy injustices and other, other injustices to the conversation that's gonna really build the right kind of programs and policies that will sustain us longer term. Thank you very much, Tom. Um, your concept of ecosystem design, I think is uh, very compelling and as a way to see just transitions from the local to the global. And so it just, it seems like that your campaign takes a, an intersectional approach to local activism. How does the campaign then view the intersections of energy, climate change, and social justice? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's uh, a critical way to understand these issues that they, they do intersect. And by resolving one, we can resolve others, right? Or maybe more positively, when we resolve one in a deeper way, it supports resolving some of the other ones. Those who suffer most the consequences of climate disasters are the most vulnerable people and uh, the ones who least caused it, right? And are also paying higher costs on their energy bills because they're proportionally their income um, is only paying for, you know, can only be spread out so far. Um, so sort of at the heart of this kind of concept for us, um, I've come to realize that the issues come from a much deeper sort of misunderstanding or cultural sort of misunderstanding of dominance over others, right? Uh, where there's certain groups who can do whatever they want, regardless of the impacts or consequences on others to overconsume, to exploit, to extract, or dominate over nature or other human beings, right? And that's, that's kind of, that, this notion of domination over the other is, is how we ultimately end up with climate change, energy poverty, mass incarceration, species extinction, it really all comes from the same kind of source, right? And so when we think intersectionality, we begin to make connections together and realize this in a deeper way. And what I'm, I'm really excited about in that is that it can move us ultimately to a deeper transformation about who we are as human beings on this planet in relation to the cosmos ultimately and like what's our real relationship to everything. And I was really fortunate enough to spend um, 10 years in Guatemala living with indigenous communities of Mayan people. I lived with Kachikel and, and Quiche people for many years. And one thing that really arose for me that, that I learned deeply was this sense of reverent humility about life and um, <clears throat> this understanding that we can find our, our place, our right place in the cosmos with each other, that there's no one that's kind of on top or the top dog of anything. We're all in relation. And I remember this experience. I was with Margarito Qua. He's a Kachikel speaking farmer and uh, lives in a, he and his family live in a cornstalk made house. And I spent a lot of time with him. And one day he said, you know, Tomas, I want to show you how to plant corn, right? Like, you know, I've planted corn a lot. I know how to do that, right? I was thinking in the back of my mind, but he took me out in his field and he had this, um, you know, it's like an 18-inch wide hoe that they use. Uh, and he took me out and had a little bag of seeds of corn and he made the first hole in the ground. It's like this nice sandy volcanic soil. And he threw five seeds into the ground, you know, and he said, 
you know, this first seed here is for, for the worms who are going to eat the seeds. The second seed is for the, uh, for the birds who are ultimately going to eat some of our corn. Another, another seed here is for the pigs. We want to feed them too. And then the, the last two seeds is for us. It's like, wow, that's, that's such a different concept, this notion that we're in relation to others and that everyone is connected to one another and everyone has a right to be here somehow. And so in the end, that's where I think we need to lead ourselves to, right? And I was so inspired by that. And there, there's a little quote that I, I was just reading the other day by Lewis Thomas. He said, statistically, the probability of any of us being here is so small that you'd think the mere fact of existing would keep us all in a contented dazzlement of surprise. So this sort of sense that like, you know, we didn't really create any of this. We're here somehow, almost magically and beautifully, and that we need to honor each other. And the ultimate aim of, of this sense of intersectionality, I hope us, hopes to bring us in that direction. Thanks, Tom. So in light of the most recent movements in support of black lives, how can we promote intersectional awareness and action between climate justice and anti-racism here in Harrisonburg? Yeah, really good question. Um, the Black Lives Movement has been really critical and for me personally and really helping me see that it's not just about um, maybe just about being nice or about educating ourselves, but it's about, it's about policies and it's about systems change, right? that are entrenched in our society that perpetuate injustice, right? We all know that old saying, you know, if you give a person a fish, you know, uh, they'll eat for a day, and if you teach them how to fish, they'll be able to learn how to fish and, you know, get their fish, and they'll be able to do it for years on end. The reality is, though, that they don't have oftentimes access to the river to fish in, or the fish or the, the the river's polluted as well. So there's deeper systemic issues at stake here that we have to really look at and transform. And so, like, it's not enough to just, like, put up some solar panels or even cover fields of, of land with solar panels, but rather it's about systems change, right? And I can think of a few of these. Um, you know, in Virginia, we have the lowest uh, standard of building codes for energy efficiency, one of the lowest in the, in the country. And... Due to that fact, all of a sudden we have apartment complexes that are built in a way that are consuming a lot more energy than they should. So the residents, who are often communities of color, are living in those, and then they're paying a much higher proportion on their energy bills. And then they have to decide between medicine, school books, paying their energy bill, food, and so that perpetuates this ongoing oppression. Um, I have friends from Mexico here who live in town living in trailer courts, they're paying $400 and $500 a month on their electricity bill. I mean, that's, that's for real. It's like, it's phenomenal. I mean, we also have a, like a, de we're dependent on a centralized power generation and distribution by large corporate utilities, you know, worth, you know, well over $500 billion uh, by allowing community solar, creating new systems, new policies that allow shared solar. It would give families and renters and small businesses a stake in expanding renewable energy in the market, right? And and keeping money here at home for people. So we have to figure out a way to share power. And part of the goal of this 50 by 25 campaign is, is creating the space to share power, to bring people in from diverse communities, to have 
at the table, their voices deciding what needs to be done and how to how to create this. I mean, I can sit around with a bunch of geeks who are into energy and think about policies, right? But if we don't have those voices right there with us, we're not going to create the right kind of policies that meet real people's needs. So the Black Lives Movement is really waking me up <laughs> to the hard truth of, of, you know, that some people don't have same access and aren't valued equally because of these systems. And many of us, particularly white folks, really, we can't even see this at times. Thank you for emphasizing that. And um, I think that one of the loudest calls from anti-racist work is to provide space for more black, indigenous, and people of color to yeah. lead and collaborate in the climate justice and other social justice movements. So I wonder if you could talk about how a more diverse coalition, how this could influence more urgent action and just outcomes in terms of climate and energy. Yeah. Well, I think one thing that's pretty obvious for me on that is uh, folks who are coming from that reality have a deeper sense of the urgency in many ways. Like I'm finding, you know, it's it's not just white folks who are concerned about this. It's actually vulnerable communities and people of color who are actually, their voices are even clearer and stronger about this, and they understand it and are even more passionate about it. I, I'm lucky enough to work in a council at a state level with a really diverse body of people and you know, from around the country, and that's the, the area that they say we've got to look at climate justice as our number one issue here. And um, here in Harrisonburg, one of the things that we started doing was um, reaching out to the Latinx small business community members. And we have, in our committee, we have um, two members who are fairly recent immigrants from Mexico, and they began talking with Latinx business owners and right away we found out that these folks are really interested in weatherization, energy efficiency and solar and to the point where we have like over 30 um, Hispanic businesses signed up and endorsing this campaign and in two weeks we're going to be having a workshop all in Spanish presented by people who speak Spanish on solar energy and and uh, energy efficiency and it's going to be packed with with all these uh, business owners because they know the reality of it, and they know their families who are in Mexico, in Guatemala, El Salvador, Dominican Republic, who are facing these realities. So um, we need that to propel us forward, <laughs> and um, we're seeing it already happen here in Harrisonburg. So it's, it's really exciting to me. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how Harrisonburg, or really any locality or city, can make clean and sustainable energy more accessible to refugees and immigrants in their area. And here in Harrisonburg, we do have a large um, immigrant and refugee community. Um, we are a refugee resettlement area. Um, there's something like 57 languages spoken in right. our local yeah, schools. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? And you know, we, we tout our diversity here. Um, I would love to tout more inclusion yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. of those voices and and how you know we can increase access for them. So I wonder, you know, how the campaign is is thinking about that and its approach to city policy making and how those lessons might be applied in other cities. Right. Yeah. Well, I think as we were saying earlier that you know because of the richness of diversity here in Harrisonburg, we had the opportunity to bring those voices into this conversation with those kind of experiences from around the world of communities who have experienced these impacts more sort of more recently than anyone right so 
their voices are going to be critical in this conversation. Um, and there are, yeah, ways that we're going to have to create programs and policies that specifically uh, look at how we can best uh, improve that situation. One thing that we're working on right now in a partnership with Habitat for Humanity is is a program to help put solar panels on, on Habitat for Humanity houses, which really reaches out to recent immigrant populations and, and refugee community members here in Harrisonburg. Um, so we're going to have to really work hard together <laughs> with, with all these different languages and people together to figure it out. I don't think that I can sit here right now and say this is how we have to do it. It's really about, um, and that's what we're calling for in this, in this campaign and in this resolution is, is a working group that has those diverse voices, refugees, recent immigrants, making the plan together. So obviously climate change and a climate justice movement are, are global efforts, global challenges, but um, have a lot of resonance in local places all throughout the world. And I wonder what are some of the ways that that your campaign sees and, and might hope to leverage these connections between broader national and global movements here, um, here in the local community. Yeah, we really believe that like every single place, every town, every city has got to take bold action, right? And we have to do it now. And we need to coordinate with each other. And I mean, there's lots of groups already doing this around the country. Um, there's some great groups around the state, Interfaith Power and Light, Sierra Club, I mean, they've got some great things going on. So we really want to see one, one of the things that we're thinking about here in Harrisonburg is if we can if we can take bold action here and really inspire other cities around the state, that's going to go a long way for us. Um, and I think what's really important to recognize is that it's, it's about solving problems, right, and elegant solutions, um, and ones that solve multiple problems at the same time. But... But really, what we really want to be about is creating um, about creating something beautiful and creating something that that is something that we're really longing for in all of us to, that really, I think, is going to leverage us. So, for example, like, can you imagine if we were to step out of our front doors and all of a sudden the air smelled fresh and it smelled clean, and then instead of just asphalt everywhere, we're, we're looking at narrower streets that you know, are filled with vibrant energy of people walking and biking, you know, and there's gardens all around in the front yards and there's people like picking apples and there's a, you know, there's a tool lending library down the street and there's, um, you know, there's a mix of cultures together with foods growing like collard greens and there's corn and beans growing in someone's yard and there's hot chili peppers growing and there's uh, you know, kids don't even know the definition of waste anymore because it's transformed into something else like nature does, right? Um, so we really want to create create something we all, all really want. And by, by doing that, I think it's, it's going to leverage us in more and more ways to, to inspire other cities to join along with us. Um, there's certainly, um, there's a network of cities who have their public utilities owned locally and we want to coordinate with them. There's, I think, 12 of them throughout the state. So as we transform ourselves here in Harrisonburg, we can coordinate with those cities to help make that happen more quickly at that scale as well. Thanks so much, Tom. So um, I'm really inspired by your call to action here as a way for 
Harrisonburg and our local community to be leaders, not only in Virginia, but throughout the United States and throughout the world as we begin to rise to the challenge that the climate disruption has created. Um, I wonder, since this is uh, the, the audience uh, of this podcast is mainly JMU students, so um, these students wonder how they can contribute to climate justice in Harrisonburg and elsewhere. What are some concrete steps they can take? Yeah, good. another good question. Um, and we really appreciate the JMU students. They've Actually, we have a number of them working with us right now on this campaign through different classes and different internships. So um, we are super excited to be in a city with JMU and with students who are so compassionate. And, you know, in many ways, a lot of them are just really interested in this topic. So, um, I mean, I would suggest sort of three different avenues. You know, you can just get a couple of yourselves together, three or four JMU students, to figure out what you're really passionate around climate justice. And if you can make it a diverse group right from the get-go, it's going to be even stronger and more powerful. And take a slice of the issue and just start working on it. Even if you don't have money, I suggest you just get going on it and you're going to build some power and you're going to build interest in it if you keep you keep yourself positive and you, um, you know, create solutions around it. Um, we also call students to join us in our campaign. There's a ton of work to do. Even after we maybe present our, our resolution with the city, there's ongoing work that's going to be needing to be done uh, with, this, with this resolution, empowering low-income renters, small businesses, forming co-ops. One of the goals we have potentially is to help form uh, small businesses into a co-op buying club so they can get solar much more cheaply um, you know and and then working out on the on the statewide scale coordinating with other cities to help them see what we're working on um, you can also join other statewide groups like I said earlier the interfaith power and light the Sierra Club the sunrise movement um, we really encourage you to take all the different avenues you'd like and by the way, our, our website is uh, 50by25harrisonburg.org. If you want to look at that, you can uh, check out what we're doing and then contact us, and we, we'll, we'll have you jump right in with us. So Case Watkins, who's an assistant professor in JMU Justice Studies, and myself, we've been sitting here on Tom Benevento's porch <laughs> having this conversation uh, in conjunction with Global Climate Change Week. Um, thank you so much for joining us today, Tom. We really appreciate you sharing the, the work of the 50 by 25 campaign um, and, sure. and everything that's happening here in Harrisonburg and how we can get involved and make a change locally on this global issue. Mm -hmm. um, we ask this final question of all of our guests. What would you do to strengthen democracy? Yeah, wow. It's <laughs> a big question, isn't it? Um, I mean, I could think of things like Noam Chomsky would say, <laughs> but uh, um, <clears throat> I think from the context of where we are here in Harrisonburg and particularly around climate justice and energy justice, there, there are a few things that I would love to see happen. Um, one of course is to empower those most affected by the climate crisis to have uh, better access to voting. Uh, particularly people of color, because they're the ones being affected. They need to be really voting strongly to make changes. I think it's really crucial. 
Uh, of course, we need to end powerful corporate lobbying, particularly the fossil fuel industry, uh, campaign financing, really crucial. Uh, we need to figure out ways to make polluters pay the real costs of things. Uh, I think we could get rid of the electoral college. Um, I think we could increase civic education to help people really understand the power they actually do have. And I think one thing that's really, I've really found in this work here in Harrisonburg is seeing how local politics can help us model um, on, a, on a scaled up level on the state and federal level because it's really neat to be in Harrisonburg. We're really in a, in a position that's really powerful for us because local Harrison politics have real strengths in both participation and representation. Like I can, you know, any of us can call up our city council members and they're going to take time with us and sit down and have some tea or coffee and talk about issues and listen to our voices. And so I really encourage everyone to do that. And um, yeah, we're really lucky. The last one I would want to say too is really lift up the rights of nature. Um, and there's a great movement around the country around that. So we also need to incorporate that into our constitution and strengthening democracy. Thanks so much for having me and, and looking at our campaign. I really appreciate what you're doing with Democracy Matters. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Tom. And thank you, Kara. I'm very grateful to uh, be here with you and to sit on Tom's porch and to learn more about your efforts and the efforts of the, the campaign 50 by 25.